0: Thanks to Cry Malt, this is Radio Brews News. Uh, my name's Matt Kirkegaard, founder of Australian Brews News, and as ever, I'm joined by my good friend, colleague, regular co-conspirator, Pete Mitchum. Pete, welcome back. G'day, Matt. G'day, listeners. But, missed a week last week, but you know, I think we can have, you know, we've got a reasonable excuse for that.
1: Yeah, well, you know, uh, Radio Brews News HQ was um, in the process of moving to uh, some more salubrious digs befitting our new status as Australia's leading podcast series.
0: And to our credit, we did get one out in the uh, midst of good beer week, so uh, you know, live pretty much uh, from the floor of Gabs. So yeah, we're we're still doing okay. We're
1: doing okay. I, I just kind of, I, I did kind of get that mental picture of um of uh, Springfield Nuclear Plant um just changing the sign, you know, regular seven days without. Oh, hang on, no, <laughs> <laughs> we got it back to zero
0: yeah no, we, we did have a couple of uh, podcasts or a couple of interviews lined up including the one that we're playing today but it just didn't yeah they was just trying to between my moving and everything but anyway we're here we're back we'd rather get it right than rush it exactly and we've got a really good show um lined up today with uh steve hindi who's the founder of brooklyn brewery and or co-founder of brooklyn brewery and also adam ferrier who's a consumer psychologist talking about all things beer but i guess we can't start the show without talking a little bit about uh, Good Beer Week and uh, Gabs and uh, just doing a bit of a rap. Um, and you were heavily involved in Gabs particularly, Prof, but how about Good Beer Week itself? Did, did, did you get out to much apart from the events that you were involved in, um, Brewers and Chewers chief among them?
1: Yeah, not a single one, uh, as per usual. It was, <laughs> it's just one of those things that, um, and this year, I guess, with the AIBA and being fortunate enough to uh, scored a position as a judge uh, on the panel this year. That was held the week before Good Beer Week, sort of led straight into Beer week, Good Beer Week. And yet when you're sort of involved in um, but both days of the conference and then uh, hosting Ale Stars and brewers and chewers on the Tuesday and the Wednesday night, then straight into Gabs, I kind of felt that I was inside Good Beer Week looking out rather than the other way around.
0: It's a pretty big week. And, you know, I got down to Melbourne on the Wednesday and, uh, you know, we had – uh, on the Tuesday night, we had two days at the Craft Brewers Conference, which I thought was a terrific event. Um, you know, really good. Great to see so many people there. Um, as with most of those things, all of the action takes place, uh, in the halls rather than in the, uh, lectures. But, um, we, with two days there, then the awards dinner, then pretty much straight into gabs, there, there wasn't much time to, uh, to, to, to get out beyond that, apart from just go to check out a couple of bars and, uh, do a few things there, but uh, look, I, I got to one event on the third on, on the Sunday, just before I flew out, um, and it was the Off Your Trolley event at Mericott, um which is in Melbourne's northeast. Yeah, 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 in the north. In the north? Oh, so still in the north? Okay. Yeah. It's, it's a, I normally don't get too much further out than there, but look, it was just an astounding event. Um, They were doing the Rodenbark beers together with La Soren's beers and Costa was presenting, and it was fantastic. It it, it really showed um, a, a very mature approach to beer where there was some amazing food with some, you know, sensational beers, um, nothing, no gimmicks, nothing spectacular, just good beer and good food and the sort of event that I love. So, um, Just a question here from the
1: listener. Did the food follow the beer or did the beer
0: follow the food? Oh, or was it yeah. Neck and neck. <laughs> Paul McCure, oh, if you're listening, Blake. I Blake think you misunderstood. Yeah, yeah. I think I've lost you. Yeah. Oh, look, and, and the point I was making, um, I, listen, just to give you the inside joke there, I was keeping a running commentary on, on the, the, the beer and food matchings and I made the comment um you know in you know my writer's uh vanity of um you know making a floral uh, description of saying you know as as a good beer dinner should um, the, the the food leads the charge, and the beer runs to 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 catch up, meaning that you know I think all too often because it's often brewers who are hosting dinners they've got a beer that they want to match so they've got their portfolio of beers um and then it's left to the chef to try and find foods to, to match. And you get the, and you're always left with the sense that um, it, it, it's a bit of a compromise to make sure that the, the beers are represented. Whereas this was an event that the chefs had really designed an outstanding menu um, that was built around the flavors that they wanted to do. And then they chose beers from the portfolio to do it. So it was, you know, whilst beers certainly came out looking, you know, all glamorous, I, I don't think, um, you know, you you would say that the beer was the star of the show because it was the perfectly balanced meal. Oh, uh, and, and in an
1: ideal world, as a, as a, a, a guy from both the uh, restaurant and beer worlds, I think a symbiotic relationship is the one you're really trying to achieve where you almost don't know where the food starts and the beer ends and vice versa. That, that That's a, a pretty rare trick to achieve.
0: It, it is, and they, they did it spectacularly. And, and so just, you know, with, with um, sort of the, the the warm glow of a couple of uh, La Serene saisons um, I yeah just made that point. So, but in I of in 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 a caricature sort of way. And Paul McCurio cur- weighed in and uh, gave a very long defence of um, it should always be about the. Beer and the um, food equally, and uh, a couple of other people weighed in. So, obviously, I didn't make my point very clearly. And, uh, yes, yeah, so, a bit, uh, I, I also thought you'd weighed in a little bit prematurely, uh, suggesting that there was a bit of a stash going on, Prof. I don't think it was anywhere I near, I, a... I
1: don't think I intimated that at all. I just said, <laughs> I think I was going to send you both to your rooms without any dessert beer if you could which, which,
0: <laughs> which is what happens when there's. Don't nothing. argue at the dinner table, children. <laughs> yeah. Okay. It was a beer as a conversation, Prof. <laughs> exactly. Um, but yeah, look, congratulations to James Smith and the whole team. It could be a week. Um, congratulations to Stephen Guy at uh, local tap house, or um, the, these days almost uh, more famously at, the, uh, at Gabs um, for, an, for a fantastic event. And uh, prop, I didn't get down to Sydney last weekend um, for Sydney Gabs, the inaugural Sydney Gabs, but you were there. How, what, what were your thoughts there? Yeah, it
1: was terrific. I think it's fair to say that it was a success. The, um, it, just for the, the handful of brewers who have, uh, who sought me out to take me aside and sort of say, uh, what they really noticed about Gabs was that that particular venue has been used numerous times by various, uh, groups to try to, uh, achieve, I guess, uh, to, to coin a new phrase, a Gabs like experience. Um, and everyone's kind of gone out uh, yeah, with the ass out of their trousers, so to speak. Um, so not only was this the first one where uh, they built it and they did come, but I think the brewers, whether they wanted to use it as a marketing uh, and promotional experience or to actually, you know, cover their costs or perhaps even make a bit, uh, it was a resounding success. Certainly, it's a it was a beautiful venue, very different feel to Melbourne, obviously. Uh, the floor plan was essentially cut and pasted into the into the space um, and there'll be you know look Stephen guy um, are not one I don't think they even have laurels to rest on um, if that if that makes sense they um they are always
0: look no you me. might need to explain yeah.
1: it <laughs> well not only do they not they, they don't rest on their laurels so much they don't even have laurels
0: Okay, gotcha. Okay. No, no, they, they certainly don't. Because
1: that's the superfluous to, uh, to, to requirements and that sort of thing, and it would just get in the way. So I think what I'm trying to say is that they're all, already, uh, you know, as soon as they'd set up, they were looking at, okay, next year we need to do this or uh, next year we can improve uh, in this area. So next year I think will be bigger and better. Certainly I think the um, the plan is to have at least a Friday uh, night session um, because obviously with that much set up, um, doing just two sessions in one day, um, Is not as cost-effective for either the brewers or the uh, um, the organisers. Yep. Um, but yeah, really, really, really well done.
0: But they they just are fantastic organisers. You know, they they do it well. The, the, the focus, obviously, they're in business. They want to make money, but it's never at the expense of providing great quality entertainment. And just even the details that they look at. I remember um, we had a bit of fun uh, with your limp-wristed bell ringing. Um, at, uh, to close the, the first session of Gabs. Um, but the bell that they bought in was a pretty dodgy affair. Um,
1: they tried to improve the bell, so they got a shinier one, but then when they actually rang it, they yeah, realised that it was um, a bit tin and a bit um, cheesy. It didn't have the same resonance. So hmm. to their credit, they went back into storage, got the old one out and brought it back for, um, for the second session.
0: Yeah, and well, I think a lot of people would have just said, you know, this... Uh, uh we are only here for 3 days who cares we'll it is sure, what it is yeah, yeah we'll do it differently next year no they uh they're certainly except on the fly now yep yeah throughout it so anyway great week congratulations to all involved thank you linesmen thank you bull boys and uh, can't wait to see next year um the, I, I did mention the Craft Brewers Conference uh, that was held at the Melbourne Exhibition Centre, I think it's called. I, I, I get my exhibition and...
1: Um... MCEC. It's the Melbourne Convention and Exhibition Centre as against the Melbourne Convention Centre. So it's not Jeff Shared, it's the new one.
0: Yes. Okay. And uh, terrific event um, by the Craft Beer Industry Association uh, team. Um, Steve Hindy opened it. Um, we will have be able to link at the start of this to Steve Hindy's opening address together with Peter Fielding's uh, opening remarks, I recommend everybody uh, maybe pause the cassette here and uh, go and listen to that because we're about to speak to Steve Hindy, um, who is the, founder of one, or the co-founder of Brooklyn Brewery, who made some very interesting comments about the American craft beer industry, the, uh, you know, the, the, the prospects for the Australian brewing industry, um, the importance of associations such as the CBIA, and I, my interview with him draws on some of those um, topics. Um, So it'll inform you, but also it was well worth hearing. Fascinating guy. Prof, I know that you were very busy during the Craft Brewers Conference, um, but you managed to to get in for the opening remarks, didn't you? Yeah, uh, I was also fortunate enough to have heard
1: Steve Hindi give the keynote address at um, Craft Brewers Conference in the States back in 2012 or 13.
0: He didn't just run with the uh, – he did, just didn't pull the old one up on the computer and uh, read it, did he, Prof? No, he did not cut and paste. He did not
1: phone it in at all. Um, as you intimated, it was very much uh, talking about what he knew, but in terms of how it um, how it relates to the
0: Australian market. So, well, we'll we might uh, go straight into the interview with Steve Hindy and then have a bit of a chat about that on, on, on the back end. So here's Steve Hindy. Steve Hindy, welcome to Australia, and thank you for joining us on Radio Bruce News.
2: Great to be here.
0: Now, I guess you've just given the keynote at the uh, Craft Beer Industry Association Conference. Rather than go over a lot of that, I wouldn't mind picking out some themes that, we, uh, that, that you raised during that. And The first, first of uh, which was we've seen explosive growth in the U.S. craft beer industry. It's very exciting. There is all sorts of uh, you know, excitement and some would say hype uh, developing. But one figure that you gave is there's 1.5 breweries opening every day in the States. Is that something that is sustainable?
2: I think it is. If you look at uh, the history of brewing in America, before Prohibition, there were 2,000 breweries in America. The population was like 60 million. Today, the population is 325 million. I think we can easily absorb 5,000 breweries or more. And don't forget, probably half of them are brewery restaurants. They're not all production breweries.
0: Are we going back in time somewhat to do that? Because uh, at the time that you mentioned, most people would have known you know, at least one or two farmers where they purchased their, their, their product from. These days, supermarkets, convenience, consistency and quality are what people look for uh, across the board. Um, we have seen a, a boutique movement where people are looking for a little difference. Do you think that craft beer is more than just a temporary you know, interest uh, and, and a little bit of a fad?
2: Oh, yeah. I think it's, it's a sea change in uh, the brewing industry. Uh, we're really – it's kind of a back-to-the-future movement. You know, uh, back uh, in the old days, uh, local breweries were uh, very prominent – parts of their community, very distinctive beers, and today the same is true of craft brewers. If anything, uh, it's much more innovative and creative today than ever before.
0: A big part of um, the movement has come from home brewers, and you uh, acknowledge those. The Brewers Association in the States has had a discussion over the years about uh, whether the home brewers should be part of the movement. A lot of the home brewers see themselves as going pro someday. Um, is, is, is making a, a fantastic stout in your garage the same as you know, running a, a brewing business?
2: No, it's not the same. But uh, it takes that kind of passion and creativity that many homebrewers have to build a brewery and, and build a successful uh, brand.
0: How many of the breweries that are opening have what you would regard a a sound level of skills, whether they've been through UC Davis or some of the brewing academies, they've got uh, some entrepreneurship training. Are are we seeing a lot of first-timers but with solid skills, or are we seeing a lot of first-timers who want to replicate what you did and make a lot of mistakes on the job?
2: I think today uh, most startups have uh, someone with experience on their team, or... Uh, you know, they have someone who's been to uh, brewing school. Uh, there are many more people getting into this with knowledge uh, in the beginning. And, you know, when we started, we hired a fourth-generation German-American brewer to be our first brewmaster, so we weren't just flying blind.
0: And still, and I I, I wasn't uh, speaking out of term when I talked about the mistakes you made learning on the job. They're well documented in in the the books you've written describing the experience. Um, Even with the the, the business sense that you had and the brewing experience you had, you still had some very rapid lessons. And uh, reading your um, book, Beer School, was a a great uh, primer for anyone to realise that you have to be very flexible um, and adaptable in, in, in your business model.
2: Yeah, you know, I always tell people that uh, business requires every bit of imagination and ingenuity that you have and a lot of imagination and ingenuity that you didn't know you had uh, because you're confronted with uh, just a myriad of uh, questions and uh, issues and uh, dilemmas uh, that you have to work through.
0: During your keynote you talked a little bit about the uh, divide in, in, in the US where you've got the big brewers and the small brewers and whilst uh, you, you're very much a diplomat um, of the industry these days, you're an elder statesman uh, of the industry, you could still sense there was that passion and some, uh, some battle scars um, or some scars from battles uh, won and lost. In Australia, our market is very, very different. Um, the Craft uh, Beer Industry Association has welcomed the, the big two, acknowledging that our market is different. They need their support. Do you, would you foresee that there's a potential for friction between those two camps at some stage down the track, particularly as craft beer grows its hold?
2: Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I don't really know the Australian market well enough to comment in, in detail. But uh, just looking around, you know, I think one thing that is an impediment for craft brewers here is the contracts that the big brewers have with the retailers. I mean, that essentially freezes out a craft brewer uh, from a lot of the uh, biggest beer sellers in Melbourne and other cities in Australia. And I can't imagine that that, that that will not become an issue at some point. Uh,
0: That said, uh, we we hear a lot about the uh, three-tier system in the States and a lot of craft brewers have always complained about getting access to distribution because they can't distribute themselves. Isn't it true that whatever system we run under, there's always going to be divides between big and small, and that can be big craft breweries and small craft breweries, and we've seen a lot of that as some of the rock stars of the uh, U.S. Uh, craft brewing scene have broken out and become much bigger. That hasn't always been thoroughly embraced by some of the smaller startups who fear that they're being uh, disadvantaged by the big craft breweries. Is, is that just a element of
2: business? Yeah, I think it's inevitable uh, that you have uh, competition uh, between big brewers, small brewers, big craft brewers, small craft brewers, and uh, you know, the 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 best brewery will win. Uh, it, it's uh, I I think it's there there is intense competition uh, in America, and I'm sure here, but there's also uh, an important sense of uh, collaboration and working together. Uh, in both markets, and uh, I think that's really important. Uh,
0: another theme that you developed during your keynote was that there isn't a beer bubble. There's been a lot of talk about the uh, growth of the market and whether it's s- sustainable, and you uh, talked down the fact that there was a uh, beer bubble. But then you also, towards the end of your presentation, talked about the growth of private equity, as we've seen some of the uh, early uh uh, generation craft brewers cashing out for significant sums of money. Um, could the gold rush mentality set into craft beer, where we see a lot of people attracted by the money and not by the passion? Even without that, uh, the uh, business approach of the private equity managers.
2: Yeah, I'm worried about that. I think that uh, you know a private equity company approaches the brewing business in a very different way than. Steve Hendy approached the, the beer business and I fear that uh, we could lose a lot of the community sense of community that I think has been so important in making craft beer successful in the US and here in Australia.
0: Do breweries, once they've been bought by private equity, uh, remain eligible to be members of the Brewers Association?
2: Yes, we have not uh, uh, yet uh, thrown anyone out uh, for taking on that kind of investment um, but I'm you know uh, I'm not sure how that's going to work out in the future. Uh, I think it kind of depends on how many people jump ship. <laughs> Will will we see tensions potentially
0: developing in the brewers association between I- if there is enough and there is enough money and the business models change significantly uh, and we lose some of that collaboration?
2: Yeah, I think uh, inevitably it, it's going to put strains on uh, on the on the business and uh, on the players in the business. But you know, there's always been intense competition among uh, craft brewers. Uh, You know, collaboration uh, in, uh, uh, like, our trade association is one thing, but uh, out there battling to get a tap handle in a bar is a whole different ballgame. So uh, it's not all uh, brotherhood. Uh, You know, there's intense competition, and and that's the way it should be.
0: One figure that had... uh delegates both gasping and laughing uh, was you said that Shock Top which is uh, an Anheuser-Busch faux craft beer was the word you described was selling for less than $50 a barrel Um, craft beer in Australia would almost never be selling for less than $230 a barrel, what are the structural differences in the industry that allow uh, US craft beer to be so much cheaper than, than Australian craft beer
2: well I think you have very high taxes here and uh, that's the main reason for the higher uh, cost to to the consumer of the beer. Uh, typically, our kegs are like $150 uh, in the U.S. So, $44 is unbelievable. I, I mean, I I could not. I, my eyes popped out when I saw that number. At the
0: same time, uh, Brooklyn, uh, Sierra Nevada. Um, Sam Adams, sorry, Jim Cook's uh, brewery have all grown to such a size that we're seeing your beers reach uh, Australian shores at very affordable prices. Um, Should Australian craft brewers be worried about Steve Hindy?
2: I don't think so. Uh, You know, an Australian craft brewer uh, has a much more secure hold on the market here than uh, Steve Hindy and Brooklyn Brewery do. Uh, You know, We export a lot of beer. I think we may be the biggest exporter of craft beer. It'll be about 40% of our sales uh, this year. And that just happened by accident. I mean, it wasn't like we went out with the intention of doing this. Almost from the day we opened our doors in Brooklyn, we had people coming to us and saying, I think I can sell this beer in Sweden or the UK or or, uh, Japan. And I remember saying to people, are you kidding? I'm having trouble selling it in Brooklyn, you know? Uh, and so in the beginning we just told, uh, importers said, look, we'll send you beer, but you got to pay us first. Uh, and we don't discount the beer that we export. It's sold at a very full price, uh, for us. So, uh, you know, that there's demand for Brooklyn beer in Australia and I think it's great. It's great for us. I love coming to Australia and, uh, You know, it's not something that I set out to create by, you know, doing television advertising or something like that. It just happened to us, and uh, it's welcome. Just
0: one last question, if if I may. If somebody's listening to this and they're thinking of starting a craft brewery or they've just started a craft brewery, are, are there any just key lessons that, from all of your experience and all of the successes and the mistakes you've made, that you would offer them?
2: Yeah, if you're starting a craft brewery, the most important thing you can do is read my book, Beer School. (laughs) Uh, If you're starting a craft brewery, I I say good luck, go for it, uh, and you're in for the ordeal of your life.
0: But at least you'll have a good beer to keep you company.
2: And you'll have a great time, and you'll meet a lot of great people.
0: Steve Hindy, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Brews News.
2: Thank you, Matthew.
0: There you go, Prof. Now, he is, for a bloke who is, you know, he's been flown to Australia to keynote. He's spoken at beer events all around the world. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, he was on stage with Jasper Cupidge, um, where they launched the idea for a new Craft Brewers Association in the UK. He is the quietest, most, uh, you know, mild-mannered, um, humble person that you could ever hope to meet.
1: Yep. Yeah, very much. Uh, yeah, he and his partner um, were absolutely delightful, they were um, they were kind of sharing a, a little a little bit of a, 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 um, a head cold or um, you know I don't know good be a weak flu that was um, that was going around um, but soldiered on uh,
0: beautifully. There, there are a couple of things that he said uh, during the the speech that I still I know it's a recurring theme in this podcast but I do you know worry about the hype and hubris that spreads into industries such as the the brewing industry at the moment where you see so many breweries open. Um, I mean, he's very bullish, saying that the the states are at 10%, um, even though there's one and a half breweries opening a day, um, you know, they're nowhere near a craft beer bubble. Yeah. And for me, and look, I I agree, but when he starts talking about the the figures, um, you know, about there is, you know, one one brewery to eighty thousand people in the states. I can't remember, or well, one and one brewery to sixty four thousand in uh, England. Um, you, you'll hear those figures, listeners. And Australia is, you know, much higher than that. I think we've got one to over one hundred thousand. Um, I, I, I just think that that forgets the fact that Australia is a highly centralised um, economy. You know, we we've we've very strongly clustered around capital cities. Um, so. Yeah, I, I I I don't know those figures directly relate to Australia, but also, well, I think there's a difference between they also, you know,
1: didn't, uh, they also don't include I think I believe contract breweries, so I, I think the the figures don't necessarily um, correlate
0: directly. if that makes right. sense. Right. Okay. That that does make sense. But the other thing is, I think when people talk about the craft beer bubble, they look at the number of breweries, um, and for me, there's a difference between craft beer and craft breweries. I think the market for craft beer is growing stronger and stronger and stronger, which is great. People's ch- tastes have really started to change. Um, people are looking for something uh, a little bit different um, with their beer, but whether the breweries making it, whether we can have too many breweries making beer, I'm I'm still a little bit un- unconvinced about that because, you know... You speak to anybody that's been around for a while and they talk about it being a unit cost game and they're really trying to get their prices down, their unit production costs down. Um, and we're not going to see all of the, you know, dozens of breweries that are opening up able to, to grow and expand to the state and for a whole host of reasons. Um, to the, to the, you know, extent that they can get their costs down. And once you get a real cost differential between, you know, breweries making very similar beer, Unless you've got a very very strong brand, it's potentially hard for some breweries to uh, to compete. You know, when you've got a ninety dollar product in the market against a you know $60, 65 five seventy dollar um yeah uh, uh, you know product. And anyway, that that's uh, I'm sure a lot of people who have invested money in stainless steel have, have thought about this. But that's where I'm not quite as bullish as Steve. But no, fascinating interview. Really lovely guy. I felt very honoured to meet him. And listeners, we do have a uh, we, we talked about his book. Um, we've got a copy of his uh, recent book, Signed. It's obviously not signed personally to you, um, but it's a, a copy of his book um, that we're going to give away. If you can shoot us an email to editor at au, telling us what the initials CBIA stand for. Um, and we will pick you know, a, ran- a random uh, draw um, from listeners of the podcast. Our
1: lines so, are open now. Uh, operators are standing by.
0: Call now. And thank you very much for listening uh, to that. That's just a little thank you uh, thanks to our friends at the oh nearly said it the <laughs> CBIA um, who uh, kicked that in and Steve generously uh, signed it. Now next interview, Prof. Um, during gabs we did our. Uh, Bruin Transfer, which is our homage, um, a.k.a. direct ripoff of the Bruin Transfer, the fantastic ABC series, in which we looked at beer advertising and we had a fascinating panel of uh, people, including Tim Avadia, who is the general manager for premium and craft at CUB, our good friends at CUB, and I can say that without any uh, smirk these days. Um, we also had Justin Fox from Colonial Brewery in Western Australia, and we also had this fellow, Adam Ferrier, who is a regular panellist on the real Bruin transfer. He's a consumer psychologist, and he's a really fascinating, really interesting guy um, with his backgrounds in marketing and psychology. Have you seen much of his work, Pete? I have. Yeah, I did quite a bit of research. Um, this time
1: last year, or a little bit earlier, when we were trying to get the, the Bruin transfer up as a as a stage show, um, and and sort of looked into... Uh, his work it's, it's just a fascinating area you you know it, it's something that i think we all try to think we're immune to um and and that that whole consumer psychology and and oh, ads don't affect me or uh you know i don't i don't uh, listen to what my TV tells me to do um, oh, I, I don't care
0: who makes it it's how it tastes
1: exactly it's it's the liquid in the bottle and share of throat and kpis and all that sort of stuff but um yeah fascinating guy and it, and, it, and just a, a pleasure to to work alongside him it was great fun
0: yeah, and so my first question to Adam was, what is a consumer psychologist?
3: a consumer psychologist is a, uh, a psychologist who looks at um, understanding people as, and their relationship with consumption. So um, consumer psychology looks at why people buy what they buy uh, and works out ways to influence them to uh, either buy more or buy less, depending on what side of the, um, the moral compass you're working on. we might come to that
0: a little bit later but uh, you've got a background you you are a psychologist um, but what fascinated me about your uh, bio is that you spent some time as an international cool hunter
3: yeah um, that was um, uh, by chance really so I I was studying um, uh, psychology and clinical psychology um, at the same time I was studying a marketing degree so I always knew I wanted to get into some kind of commercialized form of psychology. Uh, and I did my thesis in clinical psych on identifying the underlying constructs of cool people. And, um, and I did that again because I wanted to study something that had a commercial application. I knew at the time everybody was interested in what makes people cool. Uh, did that, identified five factors that make people cool and then, um, I used that knowledge to help, uh, brands, um, kind of identify cool trends and cool people around the world.
0: So what is a cool person? I'm not just asking for a friend. <laughs> <laughs>
3: uh, so um, all, when, when, when we did the study and, and subsequent kind of research later shows that all, if you identify somebody as cool, they've got five traits. You've got self-belief and confidence. They defy convention, bracket but not for defying convention's sake. They're, under, uh, they're they're successful but they're understated about it, so we call that understated achievement. Uh, caring for others, so they're probably slightly left-wing, slightly humanitarian. And uh, the final factor is connectivity, highly connected. Um, so those, those variables are, uh, are what, yeah, what differentiated cool from uncool people.
0: Right. Uh, you, you sound like you're talking about something that's the complete antithesis of uh, what people have come to label the hipster.
3: Yeah, it's interesting. Um, let, let's go through them. So, self belief and confidence, maybe defying convention, no, because it's very, very contrived. Um, understated achievement. The hipsters don't strike me as being particularly understated. Caring for others. Pretty. Self, they seem like a pretty self-centered, very self-aware bunch. I don't know. Yeah. So maybe hipsters aren't cool at all. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 Oh, yeah, don't know. I I reckon I reckon the whole I I find it very difficult how hipsters can um authentically feel hipsterish when there's so much kind of language and uh, discourse going on about their look and their aesthetic. it must be very hard for them to just, just just not care what people think when everybody has an opinion on their on their tribe, if you like.
0: <laughs> I should say that was a, a, a completely unplanned detour, and it's not in any way suggesting that craft beer drinkers or beer drinkers are hipsters, but
3: uh,
0: <laughs> which seems has been a subject of discussion recently that has upset a few people. Right. One of the things I want to speak to you about today is beer in Australia is one of those products that people have a very strong sense of emotional attachment to. We have a, a much stronger t- attraction to beer brand and, ble- and uh, you know, think much more deeply about beer than we do about a whole lot of other consumer goods, you know, something as ubiquitous as milk or even something as uh, recently popular as wine. What is that emotional attachment? Um, you know, why do we have such a personal resonant attachment to beer? I guess
3: there's a, I guess there's a few reasons for that. Number one is, um, is the alcohol in beer will give you some kind of um, disinhibiting effect and, um, and some kind of... Um, it loosen you up a little bit. And when you have a disinhibiting effect and you can act to how you want to act, then you're gonna have a pretty close relationship with any brand or any product category that has that promise. You wanna be able to trust that brand pretty well. The second thing is people are normally drinking beers in situations that matter. It's not around the breakfast table when it's just you and um you on your own or you're your flatmate or you're on your wife or somebody you know really well, you're often consuming beer in situations that are highly socially important to you. And so uh, there's a saying in consumer psychology that actual self plus brand equals ideal self. And so at the very least, you want the brands you consume to be reflective of who you are and or who you aspire to be. And so therefore, because... Because you're consuming beer in situations that are important to you and important on on how you perceive yourself and the friendships you have and so on it kind of tends to have an elevated role I guess in our in our consciousness what what beer you choose and what that beer says about you. The difficulty for marketers is it's bloody hard to get people to admit that.
0: (laughs) That's another idea that I think we'll come back to um, about admitting to ourselves why we choose the brand of beer But it's interesting that you say um, that brand, you know, um, is self plus ideal self or brand sorry. uh,
3: Actual self plus brand equals
0: ideal self. Equals ideal self. Because when you look at some of the famous beer ads and uh, we we talked about some of these at the Bruin Transfer recently but you know you you think of the classic Forex ad where there's four, you know, I would describe as slightly buffoony guys on a fishing trip, you know, None of them are particularly, uh, you know, athletic looking. They all look like they've sort of gone to seed a little bit. There doesn't seem to be too much ideal self reflected in in those ads. Um, Is it that beer drinkers have a very low sense of self that that is their (laughs) ideal ideal
3: self? Yeah, well, you know, if you think about the '70s, we're probably possibly living in a time where most people were more constrained and had more. you know in quotes professional office jobs and there was less casualization in the workforce and so then when you wanted to have a beer you know a beer was all about clocking off and enjoying yourself and being a buffoon with your mates and hanging out so you know I'd I'd challenge that and say no for, for the time that probably was a pretty good articulation of what your ideal self was in that moment.
0: I'm talking about the current Forex ads. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so, 30, so, so 30 years down the track, are we now, you know, as the uh, the, the mainstream beer industry sort of uh, really uh, missed the boat and sort of stayed, you know, decades away in terms of our self, self-identity?
3: Well, I reckon a lot of, uh, I reckon the big commercial brewers are operating uh, with, you know, two tiers of brands at the moment. You've got your traditional mass market brands and you've got your niche Kind of more urban or craft uh, brands, and you know maybe they're just staying the course on those bigger brands because that's what those brand that's what the meaning of those brands is all about, and maybe they're still a target consumer that those messages resonate to. But I think what's what's interesting is is the whole kind of, where the growth is in, in the beer category rather than the decline. Those those codes, those buffoony mateship codes, are, are not there at all in, in the growth areas of um, beer.
0: I look at a watershed, and when, when you see the ads, um, you know they're, they're targeting blokes who are probably you know, 40 and above, um, the the Forex Gold ad, and then you've got Forex Summer Bright Lager that targets is, is what's called a contemporary um, premium, which is a, you know, they seem to be targeting the under 30s, and they've got a very different um, brand promise um, than the other Forex brands. Is, is that sort of a case of a line? You know, understanding a little bit where it's going, and uh, I, I described it uh, at the Gruen, uh the Bruin transfer as you know they almost are waiting for the forex gold drinkers to die off, so they can shift fully into the more contemporary uh, attitude of beer.
3: Yeah, I think you're right. I think I mean I don't, I don't know, and I haven't spoken spoken to them obviously, but my hop, yeah I, I'm I'm assuming that, that they're understanding the trends and understanding uh, the changing demographic of beer drinkers and um and trying to contemporize that brand. But it's bloody hard. Again, it's really hard to do that. A brand's like a muscle. And uh, if you constantly do the same thing over and over again, you get very, very strong at standing for one thing. But it gets very, very inflexible and very hard to stretch out of doing that. So that's why uh, big kind of legacy brands struggle to reinvent themselves because they've become so strong, so synonymous with one thing in the consumer's mind.
0: That's something that, uh, we've seen the brewers grappling with. The Brewers Association came out last year and talked about they were going to bring a, uh, uh, campaign about brand beer and try and change some of the what are now regarded as negative perceptions about beer. Um, you know, that it's, uh, causes weight gain, that it, uh, you know, is only for blokes and not women and that women aren't welcome to the party. Um, I, I've criticized them on the basis that, you know, they were the ones that helped shape and reinforce those perceptions is is that what you were talking about there that it becomes inflexible, it's very hard to change those perceptions that they've reinforced.
3: Yeah, I was, I was talking about more, more. I mean, I was talking about more mainstream lager style, what we're Australians call, I think what Australians call lager style uh, full strength beers. You know, they, they have positioned themselves uh, as largely um, irrelevant to to emerging beer drinkers. However it is what what beer has done as a brand is it's broadened it's uh it's broadened what is now considered beer into a whole lot of you know all the craft beers, uh premium beers, light beers, mid strengths and, and so on and so on. So it kind of feels like at the moment your your mainstream full strength lager has got a dated uh a very dated um role in society. But it's a like, but beer feels as a category feels stronger than ever ever mainly because of what all the niche brewers are doing and beer culture is changing massively and it's so exciting as a as a beer lover uh to see so more women are drinking beer than ever more better quality beers being drunk you know all of all the kind of stuff you know and um and your listeners of this would already know anyway
0: We've seen over the last few years uh, what were once imported beers, but are now international beers, they're, most of them brewed here, um, have almost become the mainstream uh, market. They're, they're no longer seen as premium. They're almost the default beer for a big part of the uh, population, the beer drinking population. But even though they're brewed here, uh, they don't seem to have lost too much of their cachet. Um, What is it about the international beers that something that is the equivalent of Fosters or uh, VB on the streets of Rome or uh, Bremen in Germany um, or or, or the States is seen as premium when it lands on our shores?
3: Um, Well, that's not... there's there's a couple couple of things. That's not dissimilar to to cars where um, BMWs in in Germany uh, are taxis and yet over here they're kind of seen as as premium cars so it depends if something's not from here it has a sense of scarcity and value that uh and, it, and kind of for want of a better word exoticness and a, a whole lot of symbols symbolism that you can buy into that, that marks you as a particular person so if you're drinking um a beer from belgium it's going to say you know you've got a bit european a bit kind of arty a bit whatever if the if so, that becomes the beer, the, the brand promise, and the brand promise is made up of everything that brand does, everything that brand stands for, the image of it, the label, the advertising, that what's in the actual liquid itself. Out of all of those factors, if that's something that suddenly just says, "Oh, brewed in Australia," or, or "brewed in Australia," or "made in Australia" to to European recipes or whatever, that's only one very, very, very small component of what that brand is actually about so therefore it kind of makes sense that it should have very little impact on sales or very few people would reject it based on just purely on the fact that it's consumed here. When we, when we consume beer or any, other, any brand it has two lots of benefits, it rational benefits what's the actual product like and what it does to me and emotional benefits. The emotional benefits of beer because as you said before such an emotive category is so important. That they can still survive, even if it, no matter where the beer is brewed. Does that make sense? So, so yeah. So a Belgian beer is still a Belgian beer, even if it, because that's the promise, that's what it says, that's what it communicates, that's its image, uh, even if it's actually brewed here.
0: A lot of uh, beer drinkers that I communicate with feel cheated when they turn the bottle over and see a very small print, you know, brewed under licence in Australia. Is it the marketers? cheating them or are they allowing themselves to be deluded by buying into the whole uh, uh, brand anyway?
3: I think we're deceiving ourselves for buying into that. I think you know if, you're, if you discover a brand you really love and you've uh, um, invested a lot of, that, of yourself into that brand and you find out it's, from, it's brewed in Australia where you thought it was brewed in Belgium, I think you're going to be able to find a way to rationalise your way out of that very, very easily. Um, there's a great book by a guy called Seth Godin called All Marketers Are Liars, and what he what he says is we like we, is market a marketer's job is to create a story about a brand that's believable enough for for um for consumers to buy into and feel okay about. So if you're drinking, for example, a Stella that's from the and you're drinking it because you want to be perceived as premium, it's a bit European, it's a bit arty or whatever, then as long as that brand is communicating all of that kind of stuff about you and the beer tastes all right. Then you're going to forgive that brand very, very quickly for being brewed in Australia. If it's being brewed in Australia is fundamentally communicates something very, very different about you, so it's, it's on massive letters and the packaging or whatever, then you might change your mind. But, um, other than that, you're going to be very, you're quite happy to deceive yourself to go along with the story.
0: I get um, the, the, the feeling from craft drinkers and I, in fact they come out and say um, that they drink purely for the flavour that they don't care who makes it and you know you, you see a lot of people sort of saying look I don't care who makes my beer I'll just sort of go where the flavour is. It, 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 are they sort of much more in, in, in tune with you know the, the, the rational benefits or are they sort of buying into some of those emotional benefits as well?
3: Yeah I, 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 it's, I, I would have... I'd have... It's it's an interesting question, and I think they're probably uh, I think they're probably deleting themselves. So I think they're probably buying into the image uh, of that beer and of that craft beer as much as anyone. And I think as soon as they drink that beer, they want to know the story. You know, if they find a beer they like, they want to know the story about it, who the brewer is, where it's brewed, and then they'll be quick to recite all of that information to someone else when given the opportunity. Now, they might think they're doing that to tell just a pure product story, but even by their their willingness or their want to just tell a pure product story, it's also communicating something about them that they don't get into the hype of brands and all of that kind of stuff. But then, they're still using that brand in the same kind of way. Today, young consumer is completely marketing saturated. They don't know what it's like to live in a society where not everything's branded, so everything, Absolutely everything has has a kind of a a brand story associated with it. If you're talking about a uh, 65-year-old plus kind of uh, consumer who grew up in a time when marketing wasn't as pervasive, then I might believe them a little bit more, but they really truly just have found something they like the taste of and they're not interested in the marketing message. But if it's anyone 65 or younger, I think, nah, they're just, we're all suckers for it. (laughs)
0: <laughs> it, it it sounds like it's going a little bit back to uh, the, the whole question of who is cool. Um, you know, it, it, it sounds like we, for most of us, feel that we need permission to drink. or We need to be able to justify what we're drinking if we're asked by uh, you know, a friend, why are you drinking that? Is, is that something that we, we sort of look for when we choose the brands that reflect us?
3: Yeah, I think, you know, what, I think you're talking about the barroom defence, which is, I think both the big brewers use that kind of phraseology. Uh, so when somebody asks you why you're drinking a beer, no matter what the emotional reasons are, you've got a rational defense. You can't say, I'm drinking that beer because I like the advertising. You have to, or I like the packaging, or I like the story of the brewery. You have to be able to say something rational about the actual liquid itself. i like, it's crisp, it's refreshing, it's got chocolatey notes, whatever it is. But people need a rational decision Again, so they, they can feel good about themselves and see themselves as a, as a rational human being, not somebody who makes their decisions based on a whim or based purely emotionally. Um, so it's, it's, it's human. It, what I really want, I'd love people just to understand marketing, understand its effects, admit that none of us are immune from it. And then once we kind of acknowledge that to ourselves, then we can make more informed decisions about what we buy into and what we don't, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, it does. The wine industry's got some great studies where they've hooked people up to EEG machines and given them glasses of wine and said this one's a $15 bottle and the next one's a $75 bottle of wine and measured the, the, the way that their brain registers pleasure for each of them.
3: Yeah, that's and they... right. And then what you're talking about, there's a great study where they, where they looked at the thing called the price placebo and the more you charge, the better it tastes and the more you enjoy the wine. Now, nobody's going to admit to that. And they're not going to admit to enjoying the bottle of wine more if they pay more for it. And the same works for beer as well. But, you know, in quotes, it's the truth. And so people need to acknowledge that.
0: <laughs> but the, the thing about those studies that for me is, you know, I can understand rationally that we've convinced ourselves um, that, we want to in, that we want to enjoy it more. But that study showed that there was actually a physical response. Um, of, of greater pleasure for the more expensive thing and it, it to, to me it shows how deeply we delude ourselves uh, in, in those sorts of situations
3: yeah one yeah i I totally agree, and um it just goes to show how how far how hard it is for us to convince ourselves that we 're um, enjoying something for rational reasons, and if we 're paying more for it, then it must be better quality wine, and we must be enjoying it more than if we didn 't pay more for it, so therefore we do. We're very effective liars to ourselves.
0: You've, had some, uh, you know, you've got extensive experience uh, in advertising. You work for Cummins & Partners that has, done, that has won a number of awards um, for the way that you've uh, approached your advertising. Is there one beer brand that you would love to take control of and you know, turn around its, uh, its advertising and its marketing?
3: Um, uh, let me answer that later. I'll answer a slightly different question. I really respect and love what uh, Corona has done for the industry. I think, uh, and I'm sure a few of your listeners would that would put hairs on the back of their (laughs) neck. But but I but I think how I think I think their style of advertising, the emotive promise, I think is wonderful. I think it's great. I think uh, I think the way Coopers has maintained um, its relevance as craft beer has skyrocketed, I think, is very admirable. Um, I would love to see um, every mainstream brand have a genuine uh, chocolate porter with uh, probably with, with with coffee in it as well, just because I just love them. And so, you know, if if I could convince any big brewer to do that, that'd be great. Um, but there's no there's no real there's no real brand I'm I'm dying necessarily to get my hands on.
0: One of the things I, I was told by a marketer for one of the big breweries is that they found it very hard to engage with the craft segment because it is so small. Um, and you know it was described that they have big hands, and so they, they sort of can't get in and pick up the little um, bits and pieces that are that are floating around. Um, is is there a way that you think that they could much more effectively engage with these new and emerging craft beer markets than they have already?
3: I love that expression of the, of the big hands, and I and I uh, see the issue. I mean, marketing is is a mass market game where traditionally you have. Um, Mass production, mass distribution, supported by mass communications and that 's what the big brewers have gotten good at. They need to get a whole different skill set to be able to manage um, craft beers. Unfortunately, craft beers, a little bit like wine, sometimes work against the the rules of marketing where the the more popular it becomes, the more aspirational it becomes, and in fact. Uh, you know, for many wine brands, sometimes becoming popular can kill the brand. And I think craft beers face that same struggle. They need to be managed, yeah, very delicately and very nimbly. Um, and they, and there's a whole different set of skill sets rather than just advertising that they need that the big brewers need to learn. And that's kind of again why I think it's kind of it's kind of like a two-speed economy at the moment. There's your massive legacy brands. And then there's the, the craft brands, and they need very, very different skill sets in how those brands are marketed.
0: You're a beer lover yourself, and I understand that you wrote your book, The Advertising Effect, uh, How to Change Behaviour, sitting in the local
3: tap house at St Kilda. Um, yep, that, that, that's right. Many, Sunday, many, many a Sunday afternoon. Yeah.
0: It, what do you think craft beer could do to better sell its own brand?
3: I think it needs. I think craft beer. I think it's already doing it. I think it's already embracing females and femininity, and making sure every craft brewer has uh, has females as part of its target market. So it's a totally inclusive brand for a modern world. The other thing I think it could do, which it's already doing, is losing its stuffy bearded image. and um, oh, I'm not sure
0: about it. maybe the stuffy image. I'm not so so sure about the bearded
3: image. <laughs> There's quite a few beards on there associated with craft beer, <laughs> but uh, you know, craft beer to me is just um, is beer with with beer with flavour and um and that can and, and beer that offers new experiences each time you try it and that doesn't have to be shrouded in uh, ye oldie worldy imagery or and and. And alternatively, people, if, if people don't do that, the craft brewers, and they go straight to hipster imagery. But there's a lot of other stuff in between where you can just wrap a different type of product story around that, those beers. So I think just being even more inclusive of women and being, and offering a more contemporary, um, uh, image. Um, it could be modern, it could be slick, it, you know, it could be whatever. It doesn't have to be yoldy woldy
0: Adam, we could uh, discuss this for hours and we might get you on uh, at at a much later stage but uh, I know you've got a meeting to go to. Thank you very much for joining us on Radio Brews News and uh, now um, we'll link to your book The Advertising Effect because I think it's something that a lot of people in the craft industry um, should read. Um, Can you just give us a 30 second elevator pitch for for buying the book?
3: Yeah, thanks for linking it. I'd love to. Um, The whole premise of the book is uh, is I've been in two industries uh, as a psychologist and in advertising both of those industries about how to change people's behaviour. The premise of the book is that everybody's in the behaviour change business, whether you've got your own brewery, whether you're a mother trying to get her kid to eat her vegetables, uh, or whether you're a husband trying to get your partner to come home on time, we're all trying to change other people's behaviour. So it's just taking what I know and putting it into a book. And then the fundamental premise of the book... Beyond that is that action changes attitude much faster than attitude changes action. So if you can get somebody to do something, and we were talking a bit about it before, then they're going to change their thoughts and feelings to make sense of their behaviour. So wherever possible, try to ask people a favour. Try to get them to do something for you. And if you can do that, they'll change their thoughts and feelings to make sense of that. And so it's all about different ways to get people to act and therefore change their behaviour. But yeah, yeah, anyway, that's a long-winded pitch. Oh, we, we got to the 16th floor. That's oh, not <laughs> garden, garden.
0: Brews News is made possible by Brewpack, Australia's number one craft contract brewer. With over 100 craft beers and ciders on the roster and counting, Brewpack specialises in offering growing craft breweries a home for their packaged and kegged beer, no matter how crafty. Serious about handmade beers, and with an open door policy, Brewpack's brewers love having passionate, hands on partners in the brewery. Thinking about craft contract brewing, think Brewpack. And uh, yes, we thank Brewpack for not only making a whole lot of great craft beers possible, but also for making this podcast possible.
1: There we go, Prof. That was. I, I, I don't want to preempt anything, but I just have a feeling now that he might change his bio to sort of say panelist on the Bruin <laughs> Transfer.
0: <laughs> no, I, I don't think so. And uh, I, I've, I've taken up a bit of his time recently between the Bruin Transfer, and uh, I, I interviewed him for something else I did, and then also uh, also this um, interview. But no, I, he I, I was couldn't. very
1: generous to us with his time, and um, and, and put up with us beautifully. As a, yes. the ultimate professional that he is, I reckon he had fun, and plus he had you know as much beer as he could drink. And we he he's after very
0: impartial to uh to good stouts, you know, good oatmeal stouts yeah. and things like that. So um, yeah, he uh, which I was quite impressed with. But no, very nice guy, fascinating guy, and I could have spoken to him for hours because, as you know. Uh, you know reg listeners will know that i 've got a real um you know fascination with the psychology of beer as much as the flavor and you know for a whole lot of the reasons that adam talked about so uh, we we thank Adam for coming on and we will link to his book as well. this is a bit of a uh you know bibliophile edition um, i don't have a copy to give away um, actually we might even dig into the uh to the archive um prof and uh you know have a have a second prize uh you know, just Send us some feedback on this on this episode in Australian Brews News, Radio Brews News, generally listeners, and uh, yeah, someone who takes the time to do that will win a copy of uh, Adam's book, um, which uh, very highly uh, fascinating reading. So, uh, Prof, um, anything else to, to discuss? No, I think that's probably about it. We're um,
1: so you and I are now heads down and bottoms up in terms of um, planning ahead for uh, taking craft beer to the masses yet again for the third year running at the Ecker.
0: At the Brisbane Echo, I've got regional flavours that I'm uh, reprising the hunting club stage. okay, nice. A, a group of brewers uh, coming along, including a couple of local ones this year. We've got Green Beacon. Uh, that's the 18th, 19th of July, so about six weeks away. Um, and it, it is honestly one of the best uh, beer events. Because it, it's a food festival. It's a major food festival in Brisbane. But the because it's run under the Brisbane Marketing, it's part of the South Bank Parklands Charter um, they really do it well, so it's not an events company coming in to do it. They run it as an entertainment and as an engagement for, for the city, which just changes the psychology and the, um, uh,
1: and, you know, the... yeah. And the precinct comes up really well. Like it, it, it is really like a a, a a good food and beverage festival.
0: It is, and they've they've worked with me over the last couple of years to to bring good beer into the venue, and rather than just go to one big corporate sponsor as other, um, you know, food festivals have done. Um, you know, they, they really want to get local, small, um, you know, craft brewers in there um, who are making good beer and match it to food. So, yeah, I'm very honoured to be a part of that. So that's coming up as well. And uh, we really do start to see, there's something about the onset of winter that sees the craft beer um, world really take off, which is interesting when you think of uh, beer as a summer drink.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I'll see you in a couple of weeks, Matt. I'm um, bringing the family up to uh, the Sunshine Coast.
0: We might have to do live from the pub, uh, an episode live from the pub, prop. I
1: think, we, well, maybe from the Sunshine Coast Brewery or um, or something
0: like that. Great idea! Actually, there's some there's some good little uh, beer bars there's another up in the I think, I,
1: isn't there? That's um that's popped up on my radar recently, or somewhere down that way.
0: There is, there is. Um, so we might even uh, contact there's them. A shout and, out to well, them. Yeah, if they're <laughs> listening. <laughs> i have just got to think of the we'll name. for our own um, drinks. We, we do pay for our own drinks. We just need a quiet little corner of the bar and uh, have a bit of a chat. Yeah, you and I face to face, live from the you know, live from the pub, don't? always good to chat. Um, look forward to chatting, catching up with you again next week. Um, I got a couple of irons in the fire with who we're going to speak to. Um, we are going to speak to Danita Warren, who is the Uh, head of the Brewers Association which is the uh, association designed to uh, you know promote the interests of the large brewers Um, and uh, there's some interesting stuff there but I've got a couple of other people that we're going to speak to Um, we are going to be speaking to Martin Cornell um, who is our favorite um, you know beer mythbusters yes um, to talk a a, a little bit about beer style and uh, we've got some other great people that we uh, will, will be speaking to, but I'm just not sure who it will be next week. Yeah, is
1: three or four lined up as well. So um, we've, we've, we've got our regularity sorted out for the next couple of months.
0: We do. So thank you for joining us, listeners. Um, don't forget we've got those two competitions, uh, editor at brewsnews.com.au. Keep those cards what and letters coming. See, and keep the cards and letters coming. And uh, as always, drink less, drink better. Talk to you next week. Drink fresh, drink local. See you next time.
2: cheer now the time to roll the barrel all the games are
1: here and we're out